You're in the water loop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I know a lot of people want to use water efficient fixtures, but they're afraid they won't work as well. Let me tell you about High Sierra Showerheads, which was named Best Showerhead by Popular Science. I just installed one at my house and I was genuinely surprised at the power and coverage of the water. High Sierra Showerheads earn the EPA WaterSense label for water efficiency. They use at least 40% less water than the conventional low flow showerheads. High Sierra showerheads are constructed out of metal, so there's no plastic involved, they're very durable, and they're naturally antibacterial. One of my favorite things, these showerheads are made in the USA by a small business located in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Get 20% off with promo code WATERLOOP at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. I am a big fan of history. Uh, I like to travel around and, and check out history wherever I go. And so I'm glad to be joined for this episode by Cherie Williamson. She is Senior Associate General Counsel at the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Cherie, how are you doing? Doing great. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, glad to hear you're doing well and glad to have you on here. Um, like I said, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of history and you know a lot of our family day trips and even vacations, we, we plan around uh, seeing historic sites and all that kind of stuff. So um, I, was, uh, I was interested in reaching out to you all because I saw some articles about climate change, uh, the water impacts of climate change, and how they threaten you know, a lot of historic places around the country. And so I look forward to digging into that. But uh, kind of backing way up, uh, a historic place, what, what's considered a historic place? Yes, that is a good question. <laughs> and there are lots of answers to that question. You know, there are tons of types of historic places. I think people think about, you know, houses and buildings and structures when they think historic preservation. But it's not just that. Um, there's also archaeology. There's cultural landscapes. Um, what a cultural landscape is, is a landscape where there's evidence of um, human intervention. There can be formal ones like think like gardens at Versailles, right? That's mm -hmm. a cultural landscape. Or there can be um, natural ones that show just evidence of human habitation over you know, thousands of years. Um, so what is a historic place? Lots of different <laughs> places. I um, was thinking too that, um, you know, there are places of different levels of um, historic significance. That's the way that the preservation movement thinks about things. Um, they think about federal, state, and local history. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about you like to go on day trips, I don't know if you seek out national parks or state parks or local landmarks, but all those places are historic places. Um, and I just sort of simply too that, you know, what is a historic place? It's a place that's important to the community around it because that's how historic places get uh, preserved. So yeah, awesome. What's your organization's approach? The the National Trust for Historic Preservation. What's your approach, and and how do you generally try to achieve that protection of these kind of places? Yeah. So, the National Trust um, was founded by Congress in 1949, and 
one of our mandates from Congress when we were founded was to engage the public in participating in historic preservation. So just from the start, when we get involved in saving a particular historic place, um, we start with partners. So we look at the um, local communities that are interested in it. So there are local historical groups, there are local museums. We work with statewide partners around the country so um, we're a national preservation organization, but there are statewide preservation nonprofits in most of the states around the country. You know, I'm based in the D.C. area, and here we have strong statewide partners in Maryland, Preservation Maryland, and in Virginia, Preservation Virginia, and also in D.C., D.C. Preservation League. So we, we reach out and we work with others and, and talk to the communities. Um, we also work really closely with... Um, government agencies. So I, I'm not sure how familiar folks are generally with the regulatory schemes that exist for preservation, but there actually are. And there's um, federal laws that mandate preservation approaches for federal agencies. Um, so we work with um, agencies across the government, but often ones affiliated with DOI and the Park Service. The National Park Service is a major one. Um, and then there are also there's state historic preservation offices in every state. And there are also tribal historic preservation offices where for tribes. So we also work with these regulators to try and make sure that we get good preservation outcomes. Um, in addition to sort of identifying these partners, we also um, we do a lot of legal and policy advocacy work. Our headquarters is in D.C. And I um, myself in my role at the trust um, work a lot on legal and policy advocacy. So we will advocate for strong federal laws in particular, to preserve historic places. We will advocate for funding, um, and we will advocate for strong enforcement of these laws. Um, so like a good example, um, last week, um, Congress passed the um, Great American Outdoors Act, which is a major funding bill, like sort of one of the biggest funding bills for the parks in decades. A lot of people are very excited about that, yeah. Yeah, so we advocated, our government relations team advocated very strongly for that. It's something that we've worked on for years and supported because so much of the maintenance backlog at the National Park Service is actually maintenance of historic resources that are under their care. Okay, wow. Great. Well, I, I appreciate you giving some of that context as to what historic places are, how your organization works. I, I just learned a ton there. Um, so pivoting to water a little bit. Um, what are some examples of historic places, national treasures that connect to water? I mean, I spent some time going through your website and, and saw a number of them on there. A lot of places I'm happy that I've been myself, but yeah, could you talk about some, some places that jump out to you? Yeah, absolutely. And before I jump in, I feel like I should explain what a national treasure is. Mm. So that's another one of the ways that trust does our advocacy work. So we will identify sites around the country that are either facing some sort of threat um, or they have some major opportunity to get a good preservation result. And they're places of national significance. And if you check out our website, we've got places um, around the country. Um, and it, you're right, a lot of them actually do um, have a connection with water. I was thinking about that hmm. after you pointed it out. <laughs> and, and why that might be, and I think it's because people are drawn to water, and historic communities are often built around water. 
Um, and there are a lot of examples of that, but yeah, I mean, for one of my favorite ones recently, um, is the ghost fleet of the Potomac national treasure. And what that is, is, um, underwater shipwrecks, um, in Mallows Bay, um, in the Potomac, just about 40 miles South of Washington, DC. And late last year, it was finalized as the nation's newest national marine sanctuary. Hmm. Um, and that one is really interesting. The ships that are there, there's about about a hundred wow. ships that are there. And because of um, because of the what they were scuttled there, the most of them are the remains of a fleet, a commercial fleet that was built for World War One. And so they were scuttled there. That's why there's such a high concentration. It's not that they wrecked there; it's <laughs> that they they were wrecked there. <laughs> um, but at low tide, they actually will emerge um, out of the water. And it is um, a park that is available. It's now a National Marine Sanctuary, but it has always been also a regional park, Charles County, Maryland's regional park. It's got a great kayak and boat launch, and you can paddle around amongst you know history and also see some really um, – it's a really great um, habitat for um, – animals and for the Chesapeake Bay as well. I went out there earlier this summer and saw, um, Osprey like everywhere. Wow. That's a, that's a cool place. I have not been to that one. I've seen pictures and everything. Um, and you know, I used to live in, in that general area. So, um, maybe I'll have to make my way out there. That sounds like a fun place to paddle around at low tide and, and see some of that. Um, I wanted to rattle off some of the ones that, that jumped out at me off your website also that, uh, you know, just for people's context, you know, the James River, Jamestown, you know, the big famous colony is, is a place. Um, the Grand Canyon, right? This is this is a, one of the world world's wonders that was carved by the Colorado River. Um, you have uh, Waikiki War Memorial Natatorium in, in Hawaii, which is a really interesting place that I hope gets preserved. Uh, uh, Willamette Falls Navigation Canal in, in Oregon. And um, you also have Terminal Island uh, in LA. So there's just like, it kind of goes on and on. There's all these incredible places um, that, like you said, are like the interface between the water and human civilization on land. Um well, I guess to, to some of the bad news, um, how are water-related impacts of climate change, you know, impacting historical places? This is really what jumped out at me and why I wanted to reach out to your organization. Yeah, historic places are experiencing the same kinds of threats that communities around the country and around the world are. Um, they suffer from flooding, extreme rain events. Coastal communities are suffering and trying to figure out ways to um, mitigate um, challenges with sea level rise. So in particular for historic communities, there are a lot of our coastal communities are also have historic um, centers. Um, And some examples of that are, you know, um, Charleston, South Carolina is a well-known example. It's a very well visited, frequently visited tourist destination for people in the U.S. and around the world. That downtown historic district is actually a national historic landmark. Um, And it is to the point with sea level rise flooding there that, um, you know, they have blue sky flooding. So they have flooding just as a matter of course, not as a result of rain events, but just at high tide. Um, And it's it's repeated. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's actually, it's interesting. I've seen some historic maps of Charleston. And if you look at some of these older maps, you'll see that the peninsula where the NHL district is um, used to be smaller. And the reason is, is that it was broadened out with fill. And then people have built on fill. <laughs> and so if you look at these old maps without the fill, and then you look at today's maps of where the highest incidences of flooding are, there's a complete overlap um, of those two issues. So that's another way that um, sort of short-term planning um, has contributed to some of the challenges that are being faced in the community there. And that's a kind of issue that repeats. I mean, that's also the issue at historic districts in Norfolk and Virginia and other coastal communities. Yeah. Building, you know, building on fill in, in a complete coastal environment like that, that core of Charleston, which, you know, you've got the, you can basically see the the ocean out there. That doesn't seem like a very wise idea, (laughs) whoever decided to do that. Seemed like a good idea at the time, I guess, but now we are, we're dealing with the consequences and it's taking a lot of effort to plan around what can be done there. And, you know, Charleston, um, that historic district, you know, 10 years ago, if, if someone had said, I'm going to solve this problem for my particular historic home by putting it up on, um, by, by raising the height of it, um, people would have objected to that. Um, because it does change the experience of the place. So, you know, you go to places like Charleston and you walk around and part of the charm is um, the way that the buildings relate to each other, the form of the community. And when you change things like that, one house is up on stilts, one of them isn't, you're, you know, you're, you're changing the experience and the specialness. And also the historic integrity would be the way that preservationists would talk about it of the place. But the reality is that with the challenges of, uh, sea level rise and climate change, that solutions like that are more and more accepted and they're happening more and more often. And and it's not just that. I mean, that's not the only solution. Mm-hmm. Not every house is going to be able to be put um, raised and that's not going to be the appropriate solution for every house. So, you know, there are a lot of, there's a lot of looking for other options, like um, what type of flood proofing can be done. You know, wet flood proofing is one option or dry flood proofing is the other. Um, wet flood proofing is can be lots of different methods, but what it allows is for water to come in and out in a safe way. So it plans for the fact that lower parts of the home or the structure um, will experience flooding. They'll do things like um, make sure that all the mechanicals are moved up above where they think the flood line will be. Um They'll, make, they'll do things like make sure that the home is anchored in so that those are examples of wet flood proofing approaches and dry flood proofing is what it sounds like. It's putting in new barriers. I mean, the traditional one is sandbags, right? Mm, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you've got to have notice for that. And when it just flooding happens on, you know, a sunny day, you, that that's not a good solution. So it's experimenting with new ways of putting up um, moisture barriers and things to just keep the water out. Um, and there's a lot of, um, a lot of focus on that kind of thing in communities like Charleston. And Charleston is also, um, they're looking at a flood wall. They're looking at building a new flood wall with the Army Corps of Engineers. It's wow. another option that's on the table. 
It's, that's incredibly costly stuff, though, too, right? That's to build that type of infrastructure. Um, yeah, I was in Charleston maybe a year and a half ago and went out to Fort Sumter, which is this incredibly historic place where the first shots of the Civil War were fired. And I don't remember if it was a guide or something I read talking about sea level rise and how it is beginning you know, to impact and, and threaten that, that fort, which is out at the you know mouth of the kind of harbor there close you know where the ocean comes in and i was just thinking about wow you know historic places like this just being impacted or you know taken away because of of what we're facing um, another one that was on the list uh annapolis maryland i lived there for over nine years and they had that blue sky sky flooding also Right where you get the high tides, they come in, and you've got you've got water in the streets. I had to sometimes take a different route to get to my kids' school to pick them up because they're like, "Oh, the downtown's flooded. Got to go the back way." Uh, I think I saw an article recently where that was one of the the cities that is most frequently experiencing this. So what's what's uh you want to talk about Annapolis for a minute and what's happening there? It's a very yeah. historic town, you know, 300 plus year old buildings and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And the area down <clears throat> the city Harbor area where some of the, the historic area is um, where some of the, the flooding is most severe is also um, one of the key tourism areas for, for Annapolis. So um, there, when you have flooding damage, you have, impacts to cultural resources, which are valued by the community and visitors, but you also have some major economic um, impacts on tourism and this repeat flooding is expensive. A lot of those tourist shops are, um, there are small businesses down there, you know, Main Street kinds of businesses that have these repeated issues that have to um, be dealt with as a result of this recurrent flooding. The National Trust um, worked with the city of Annapolis and did in fact name Annapolis um, as a national treasure and worked for several years on some planning initiatives to help with um, ways to have responses in place for when flooding happens. Um, but it's going to be a continuing problem. Um, and long term at Annapolis and Charleston, Alexandria, Virginia is another place that is experiencing this. You know, it's going to take a lot of funding, a lot of city planning, um, and really ultimately um, some federal response to these challenges that are repeating at communities around the country mm. um, in terms of federal policy approaches um, and, and also funding. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, we're starting to see the the rubber hit the road here with climate change, where it's not just this, uh, you know, kind of green hippie issue, if you will, right now, we're seeing the economic impacts in terms of tourism and, and then needing to invest in these big projects to, to protect communities. Uh, another, another area I wanted to talk about is the tidal basin in DC, um, you know, and, and a lot of people have been there, maybe a lot of people haven't. So could you describe this place and what's starting to happen to this? I mean, it's an inc incredibly rich history with the monuments and memorials and cherry blossoms and all that stuff. Yeah, so the Tidal Basin is, you know, an iconic place in America, right? 
Um, I think even if people haven't been there, most people can sort of conjure it in their mind, what it looks like with the cherry trees around it and the Washington Monument nearby and Jefferson Monument. Um, and I think that people are generally maybe not aware um, that that area is being <clears throat> is facing a lot of issues as a result of sea level rise um, and and flooding. It's it's interesting I think to understand um, again the history of how the tidal basin came to be to understand the challenges that it's happened that it's experiencing now. Um, it was actually the tidal basin was actually built as flood control originally. It wasn't conceived of as, you know, a national memorial park, monument park type of experience. It was flood control built in response to a major flood in 1881 that was so severe that it um, blocked southern access to most of the city. People were going around D.C. by boat. Um, And so to um, ameliorate that near the Capitol, um, the Tidal Basin was conceived of. Um, And now, you know almost 90 years later, because of climate change, sea level rise, and also increase in runoff from development is another issue that has contributed to the issues. The water levels in the Potomac there um, are estimated to have um, increased by about 11 inches in in 90 years. Um, This is also a place where the tidal basin was constructed on man-made land, so it's another fill situation, and it's it's slowly sinking, so that's part of why you get that high number. Mm. so, yeah, I mean, it was built as flood control, designed as a park. Um, it had, you know, originally it was like a grandstand and a, a park with little boats that you could go out and rent and have a have a day out with your family. The cherry trees came quite a bit later. Um, they came in 1912. They were a gift from Japan. Um, and we actually only shifted to building monuments there in the 1930s. So some of it was you know, uh, a, a not planned to begin with for the amount of traffic that it now receives in terms of tourism and the amount of use. Um, and so you combine that with um, the changes in the climate that have happened. And we've got a lot of damage that you can see at the tidal basin. I think people sometimes go there and don't necessarily see it mm. because they're, it is beautiful. They're focused on the big monuments. But if you walk around... The basin, you'll find, you'll see that there are areas where there are no more cherry trees, mm-hmm. and it's because the soil has been compacted, um, and trees have died, um, and because of flooding, um, sidewalks are cracked, walls are cracked. Um, there have been studies that have estimated something in the neighborhood of fifty million dollars are needed to do full repairs. Um, but in addition to to fixing the infrastructure that is there, you know, there also needs to be a plan for long term resiliency. I mean, we want people to come down to the nation's capital and experience these monuments and learn about the history of the the United States. We want people to see these beautiful cherry trees. We also want them to be available 50, 100 years from now. Um, So one of the things that the trust has done at the Tidal Basin is to um, have an ideas lab where we've um, brought together five um, landscape architecture firms and ask them to come up with some solutions that will help make tourism there sustainable over time and make sure that we have 
um, long-term solutions to fixing the sort of flood control problems that are happening that will last and that meet the challenge of, you know, the rising sea. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. You mentioned uh, about stormwater runoff and, and kind of, you know, the increased precipitation, these, these heavier rainfall events that we're getting. Um, and, you know, a less coastal community or not a coastal community, Ellicott City, Maryland, uh, you know, is a place that had some really severe dramatic events in 2016 and 2018, I think. Um, and this is a very historic uh, little little downtown area. Could you talk about what happened there and, and how this is, you know, emblematic of the kind of threats that are that are out there with climate change? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up because it, you know, you talk about the tidal basin and everyone has heard of that. Um, but this is an issue that is impacting historic towns around the country. And Ellicott City is, um, it's a 250-year-old little river town community. It's a, got a historic Main Street. Um, it also has tourists that come um, because it is... Um, a good way to spend an afternoon, do some antiquing. It's that kind of beautiful, quaint place. Um, but yes, in the past few years, there have been a couple of rain events that have resulted in um, flash flooding and flash flooding that hurt property, but also was really a risk to life. And what's happened in those situations with the engineering folks going back and looking at what happened, it's not that the Patapsco River, which is the river that's right there at Ellicott City, is, is rising. It's actually tributaries that are flowing into the river are getting um, channelization from all of the sprawl and concrete that has been laid, the hard surfaces that have been laid in the past few decades that are channeling these extreme rains down into tributaries and then forcing them almost like a funnel through the um, the downtown historic area um, of, of the city. So um, it's a real, it's a real concern and it's, you know, it remain it, it's one of those things where I think we hear a lot about sea level rise and coastal communities, but extreme rain is something that is being experienced in places around the country. Um, and I should also say that Ellicott is, um, it's a main street community. And so in, in national trust world mm -hmm. in the historic preservation world that has, um, a particular meaning. Um, our, one of our partners and subsidiaries is called um, the National Main Street Center, and they work with Main Street communities around the country on economic development that's focused on preservation and tourism. And, um, you know, we're just starting to see these kinds of issues in communities around the country. But Ellicott is a, an extreme example where um, really, you know, sort of a hundred year events mm. happened in quick succession and caused um, a lot of damage. Yeah, I I would suggest people kind of go online and just Google, you know, the flooding in Ellicott City, and you'll be surprised at just how dramatic it, it was. I mean, we're talking about basically a river running right down that main street and scouring buildings and, and taking away cars, and it was uh, scary stuff. I think along the way, you've mentioned some of the specific ways to address some of these problems, but but big picture, what 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 do you think are the approaches? You know, the ways to to try to achieve preservation in the in the face of you know, water related impacts of climate change. So, yeah, it's, solutions, yeah. <laughs> solutions are solutions, uh, yeah. other. I mean, you got to throw a ton of money at these things. We've we've identified that, but yeah, what else would you say? Well, I mean, I think it's going to take a lot of different things coming together. 
Um, I mean, communities are going to have to decide what they want to prioritize um, and do the type of planning and hardening before these events occur. So, you know, we talked about wet and dry flood proofing, you know, that those are things that can happen. There are programs that can help, um, can help with funding um, on some of that. Um, there's also sort of some work to be done about looking at, um, this is pretty wonky, but looking at materials, mm. uh, you know, there is some evidence that historic building materials are actually more resilient to water inundation than some of the more modern sort of post-1970 materials that have been used, but there's not been a whole lot of research about that or a lot of research about, you know, how, how to, to manage the flooding. It's actually a really neat um, program being proposed by Preservation Virginia um, that will hopefully get fully funded to look at some of the ways that um, pre-1970s materials should be prioritized for when there is an issue um, to make sure that they stay in place because they actually long-term um, stand up better to repeated water events. And so there's some some wonky material science pieces <laughs> of it that need to be teased out. Um, and then I also think that the there must be a federal response to all of the to the causes of climate change, to the ways that we as a nation are going to deal with the um, effects of climate change, you know, the National Trust and the historic preservation community, you know, we see, we are seeing these impacts come um, to our downtowns and um, it's real. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it needs a federal level policy response. Sure. I, I, one of the agencies I think that's that's involved is the National Park Service. Um, could you talk a little bit about the role that they play in preservation and, and how they have or, or are helping deal with some of these pressures? Yeah. So the National Park Service is the federal agency that is responsible for historic preservation policy in the United States. Um, one of the things that they do that I think is somewhat visible to the public is they, they lead the National Register of Historic Places. So when you go on a trip and you see one of those plaques that says listed on the National Register, that's the National Park Service, that's the Department of the Interior. Um, but they also have a program called the Certified Local Government Program. Um, that is a, a program, it's a CLG program. That's a program that gets appropriations through the um, Historic Preservation Fund from Congress. Um, and communities that become cert CLG or certified local governments uh, make a commitment to um, preserving resources in their community. So they make a commitment to historic preservation and then they have access to funding through the Park Service and their state historic preservation office. Um, for technical assistance and for planning. So the Park Service helps to manage, I, I think people people think national parks, mm -hmm. iconic national parks, but they also have a local planning role, mm -hmm. particularly focused on making sure that our historic communities um, are protected. So that's one of the things that they do. And on the on the point of how does that impact with climate change and flooding and disaster response, they, they do some of their planning monies go to disaster planning. So for example, disaster planning for historic preservation would be making sure that you have um, good surveys in place of what historic resources are there, what is um, valued by the community so that when there is an emergency, um, 
first responders can have a sense of what it is that is around them. And when they are asked to make quick decisions about um, safety, um, they know that if they can preserve a historic place because it is valuable to the community that they will because it's been identified in planning documents prior. So things like that can help. the Park Service also has technical experts on things like materials, like we were talking earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've pulled together guidance on things like um, how to recover if your historic home or your historic building um, is flooded. And so they have a lot of technical expertise that's available to the public and also to state and local agencies. Right. And, you know, the, you, we mentioned earlier the, the Great American Outdoors Act. Um, and so I guess, you know, there's going to be a lot of resources there that can maybe help with, with this great puzzle. <laughs> You're right. Well, I hope so. Uh, I mean, another thing that the park service has, which is, is a big bullhorn, right? Yeah. Everybody's heard of the park service. They know that um, the park service, part of their responsibility is to, to save historic places, iconic ones around the country. And um, you know, they have an opportunity to talk about, issues that they're facing at their own sites, like what you were talking about earlier at Fort Sumter, um, to help people understand sort of the range of impacts that the effects of climate change are having on historic resources and sort of, you know, increase the sense of urgency and the need for action. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Last question I have for you is, you know, a a person out there that's really concerned and and wants to help preserve historic places, what what can they do? Well, I I have to put in the plug. I mean, one of the things that you can do (laughs) would be to um, follow the National Trust on social media. Um, You know, we put out regularly advocacy opportunities so that if you want to tell your um, congressional representative that you support preservation, you support support conservation, if you are happy about the Great American Outdoors Act, we help make it easy for you to know um, how, how to make those outreaches on the Hill. Um, and <clears throat> I also say that get involved locally. Um, there are Main Street organizations, local history organizations, there are um, local museums, there's your statewide preservation organizations, and they, they need your help. They um, are always looking for support and volunteers. Um, so if, if you, this is of interest to you, um, you will find the cultural resource preservation community is broad enough that you'll find something that will speak to you in terms of a volunteer opportunity. Awesome. Well, Sheree, this has been a very informative conversation. Um, I I appreciate it so much. And, you know, things are kind of strange right now with coronavirus and being able to travel and and visit places. But I mean, I'm, I'm desperate to get back out there and and explore some, some history myself, but um, thank you so much for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Travis. This was great. Appreciate the opportunity. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish choice for conserving water, energy, and money while enjoying an invigorating shower. Use promo code Waterloop for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Waterloop.